Welcome everybody. Depending on what time zone you are either having breakfast, having lunch, or about to go to sleep. Um, I want to say that once again, for all questions, please use the Q&A. When the polls come up, there'll be certain polls throughout this event. Uh, if they're in your way while you're watching, you can move them on your own screen to the side and then answer them. Uh, and I'd really like to introduce uh, the uh, chairman for this, uh, Dr. Giovanni Giacomo and Dr. Francesco Franceschi, who are uh, internationally famous uh, in this field and with shoulder surgery. Uh, it was their real idea and brainchild to have this wonderful course. So let me turn it over to them to say some great words. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Agos. I want to thank everyone, especially the ISACOS, for this effort we did to organize such interesting webinar on an issue that is the bone loss and the treatment in shoulder instability that for me is interesting, not only from... It's not interesting only from the scientific point of view, but is uh, very interesting because it represents my everyday practice. So patient selection and the best treatment is the key point to treat in the best way uh, my patient. So I am so sure that also today I will learn from my friends. Thank you very much for your participation. Thank you very much for, to everybody. To above all to the ISACOS people that tonight and today will be together with us to debate and to understand our presentations and our ideas about the bony defect around the shoulder. It is a, a very important uh, topic uh, right now and right the, the last years about uh, shoulder literature. We have uh, had a lot of uh, new ideas above all for the the progression of the arthroscopic lethargia, the treatment of uh, arthroscopic uh, surgery about the defect. Thank you very much, Gas and, and Giovanni, to allow me to stay together with them uh, to perform this webinar. It's, uh, it will be a very big honor, and so please let uh, let go. Thank you, Francesco. So the first lecture is from our friends Easy Easy Toy from Japan. The biomechanical trap. Welcome, Hiji. Hi, good morning from Japan. Uh, my recording will be started soon, or? Yeah. Hi, I'm Eiji Toy. Thank you for inviting me to this Isakos webinar. I'm going to talk about the biomechanical trap of bony defect, my disclosures. The glenoid bone loss causes mid range instability and the risk of instability is independent of the heel sacs lesion. So it can be determined only by the glenoid bone loss. We know that the critical bone loss is 25% of the glenoid width. We also know that there, are, there is a subcritical bone loss. And with this bone loss, patient has a decrease in Wozzi score. And it varies a little bit according to the investigators. And it is probably because it depends on the risk of a patient cohort. On the other hand, the Hill-Sachs lesion causes end-range instability. 
and the same Hilsack's lesion on your left is stable, but on your right is unstable because of the glenoid bone loss. So the risk of Hilsack's lesion is dependent on the glenoid size. It cannot be determined only by the size of the Hilsack's lesion, but you always have to look at the glenoid. How can we assess this? One method is to use dynamic examination. During surgery, you bring the arm to abduction and the external rotation, and the large Hilsax lesion comes dangerously close to the anterior rim of the glenoid. It's almost engaging. But after the bank of repair, the head is well-centered and the Hilsax lesion is at the level of the posterior glenoid rim. This demonstration clearly tells us that dynamic examination must be performed after the bank of repair. But there are a couple of problems. Number one, there is a risk of breaking the bank of repair. Number two, Rumplissage after the bank of repair is very difficult to perform. So we would like to know whether the rumplissage is necessary or not before the bank of repair. And for that purpose, dynamic examination is useless. That's why we recommend to use the glenoid track concept. This is a cadaveric shoulder and the glenoid is moved along the posterior end range of motion. This is the width of the glenoid and this is the width of the glenoid track. If the Hilsax lesion is here, it's an on-track lesion which is stable, but if it is here, it's an off-track lesion which is unstable. The question is, is there any difference between this and this? Both are on-track lesions, but different locations. So we divided the glenoid track into four zones and compared the Wolsey score. And those with the Hilsax lesion in the most medial zone showed significantly lower Wolsey score. So this most medial one quarter is something like a subcritical zone, which is analogous to subcritical bone loss of the glenoid. We call it peripheral track, whereas the rest three quarters central track. If the patient has a peripheral track lesion, then even though it is an on-track lesion, you may have to consider it as an off-track lesion if the patient belongs to a high-risk group. In summary, the risk of the glenoid bone loss is independent of the Hilsax lesion, so it can be determined only by the size of the glenoid bone loss, and there are critical, subcritical, and safe bone losses. On the other hand, the risk of Hilsax lesion is dependent on the glenoid sides. Clinically, dynamic examination is useless, so we recommend to use the glenoid track concept. But just be careful, there is a peripheral track lesion in the glenoid track, so you have to take this into consideration as well as subcritical bone loss of the glenoid. 
Thank you for your attention. This is Giuseppe Milano from Brescia, Italy. My talk is on preoperative evaluation of the bony defect. This is a disclosure of my conflict of interest. According to several biomechanical studies, capsular ligamental structures are considered the main stabilizers at the end range of motion, while osseous contour are the main stabilizers at the mid range of motion. In the clinical evaluation of uh, an unstable shoulder, history uh, can contribute to diagnose uh, the presence of a bony defect, especially uh, regarding the number of dislocations. And also that clinical examination is useful. The bony apprehension test is performed on the mid-range of abduction and external rotation, uh, 45, 45 degrees. Uh, and this test is positive when there is a defect on the glenoid or on, on the humeral head. According to some uh, imaging studies, the size of glenoid and humor head effects tend to be larger over time uh, with the increasing number of dislocations, even if the correlation between these two injuries is not so strong. A preoperative assessment of glenoid bone loss is actually performed on the MRI and CT scan a 3D CT scan is considered the most accurate and reliable imaging modality for predicting glenoid bone loss. Uh, this measurement is accomplished uh, using two principal methods. One is based on the measurement of the anteroposterior diameter of the inferior glenoid. Uh, however, this method tends to overestimate the true glenoid bone loss. The other method is the uh, measurement of uh, surface area of the inferior glenoid. Unfortunately, also this method can be imprecise due to scapular positioning during creation of an emphasis view of the glenoid. Um, assessment of uh, uh, sacs lesion is performed according to different um, variables, like uh, the location on, on the uh, articular surface, uh, length, depth, or width of the lesion or orientation. Unfortunately, no universally accepted method exists to quantify this lesion. Um, Yamamoto and the Itoi described the, the glenoid track concept that um, clarified the um, contribute of the two lesions uh, at the same time as uh, uh, called the bipolar defect. And Di Giacomo described the on track of track concept uh, uh, to clarify uh, the reciprocal role of the glenoid defect and his sac lesion. Uh, according to Di Giacomo, when the um, heel sacs interval is larger than the glenoid track, so the contact area between the glenoid and humor head during the range of motion in, in abduction external rotation. When this uh, length is, uh, is uh, greater than the, than the glenoid track, we have an, an off-track lesion, so a, a greater risk of failure of a stability procedure. So off-track lesion is considered a predictor of poor outcome when we don't address the bone defect. However, recent studies show that uh, also on-track lesions can be at risk 
of failure, uh, Young showed that the ratio between the Hillsax interval and the glenoid tract should be less than 0.7 to reduce the risk of recurrence after surgery. And also Yamamoto and Itoi in different studies, this is the, the, the most recent one, described the peripheral tract lesions and uh, clarified that also known tract lesion can be at risk of failure when the lesion is located on the articular side. So the peripheral tract lesion is an on tract lesion located uh, with the median margin between the 75 and 100% of the glenoid tract width. So the location probably more than the size count uh, to uh, predict the risk of failure. Uh, however, recent studies, uh, prognostic studies, confirm that the glenoid defect size rather than the off-track lesion can more reliably predict post-operative recurrence. So probably uh, the um, small, small lesions can also uh, be predictive of a poor outcome if we don't address them. So uh, for this reason, uh, the emerging philosophy is to restore the anatomy to achieve best outcome regardless of the size of our bony defects. And uh, uh, recent tech, uh, developing technologies uh, are applied to uh, estimate uh, with uh, the precision uh, the size and the shape, the volume of the missing bone on both sides, the glenoid and humor head, to create with the 3D printing technology uh, um, a perfect matching uh, graphs with uh, synthetic or uh, biological materials uh, to address uh, these defects and to restore the anatomy and reduce the risk of um, failure of our surgical procedures. Thank you very much. Good morning, good evening, or uh, good afternoon, depending on where you are. I've been tasked with discussing neurologic complications with arthroscopic versus open bone block procedures. And I'd like to thank the group for having me. These are my disclosures, nothing conflicts in regards to this talk. I thought it was worth looking at the history of coracoid transfers from one of the older guys on the panel. Uh, most of the American experience with bone block procedures came from Charlie Rockwood's paper on the procedure with failed bristos. He described a series of 40 failed bristos and came up with his now often quoted term, it was the work of the devil. 50% of the revisions in his series ended up unsatisfactory. There were two complete nerve injuries. And basically, Charlie said, we do not recommend the Bristol for primary treatment of symptomatic anterior instability. And there was very limited use of this procedure for at least the next decade in coracoid transfers and bone blocks. My fellowship experience pretty much mirrored Charlie's. Virgil May worked in Richmond, Virginia, where I did my fellowship in another group with Dr. Kasperi. And as you well know, patients migrate back and forth in large urban areas. We saw a lot of failed Bristos. So what changed? <clears throat> 10 years later, fast forward, DeBeer and Burkhardt did their paper on using letter J procedures for patients with bone loss in arthroscopic bank art repairs and reintroduced the concept of bone loss as a means of failure and reintroduced the open letter J in the United States. So 20 years later, has anything really changed or is it just another pendulum swing? So 
I presented here as a review of neurologic injury of arthroscopic and open ladder shape procedures. Fast forward to 2012, another decade, Shaw lead author J.P. Warner talking about short-term complications of the ladder J procedure. They had a 10% incidence of neurologic injury in their series. Two muscutaneous nerves, one radial, two axillary, both of the axillary nerve injuries were permanent. I was given the opportunity to do an editorial commentary on this paper, and my thoughts were this is a pretty tough series. 73% revisions, 25% had more than one operations, and these results probably were going to be different than with an uncomplicated primary ladder J. This group continued to build on their experience with another paper in 2014 talking about neuromonitoring of patients undergoing ladder J procedures. 20% had temporary nerve deficits. All of these were correlated with nerve alerts during surgery. And in a subsequent paper from the same group, Woodmass showed a 70% reduction in nerve injury with neuromonitoring. Is this experience unique? Maybe the group out of Massachusetts just had a bad run. Well, Hedy in 2020 talked about the Rothman experience with ladder J's. They had six nerve injuries, 3.2%, three with permanent symptoms, and many of theirs were suprascapular nerve injuries created by impinging on the suprascapular nerve with a superior screw for the ladder J. Garsman, another series, 416 patients, 5% complications, 3.1% nerve injuries, three extra nerve palsies, one complete. And this series, only about five of 13 of the patients with nerve injuries had prior surgeries. Frank, another series out of Rush, 146 patients, 10 complications, only one nerve injury though. And in this group, a fair number had had prior surgery. Other single institution series go out of Belgium, 10% neurologic injury. These were all temporary, but only 16% had were revision surgeries. And these were largely, as you can tell, primary ladder J's. Duplice in their series, 96 shoulders, seven nerve injuries, and uh, again, a 30% instance of complications. Fast forward, arthroscopic ladder J's. This is the first series I could find looking at short-term complications. 24% of the patients had a complication or a problem with only one temporary nerve injury. More recent arthroscopic ladder J experience has been quite good. Out of China, Zhu et al. had no nerve injuries in their series. Bolo commented on the same article, noting that in his fairly lengthy uh, commentary that nerve injuries occurred in only uh, 0 to 1.6% of reported series of arthroscopic ladder J's. And he thought the safety of the neurologic structures provided by excellent visualization and also pointed out that it requires less retraction. Pascal pointed out that neither of his published series had any nerve injuries, and this was echoed in a similar series by Castrosini, uh, published last year. However, even the French get complications with ladder J's, and this series uh, out of France pointed out a 1.5 incidence of nerve injury, and they felt, which I very much agree with, that significantly correlated with the surgeon's experience. More recent experience with arthroscopic ladder J is this paper by Hurley, where they did a systematic review of all the papers comparing arthroscopic to open ladder J. Recurrence rates pretty much the same, no nerve injuries in the open group and only one in the arthroscopic group. But they did correctly point out again that the arthroscopic procedures were advisable to perform only in high volume centers. 
systematic reviews. They only had 21 nerve injuries in this review reporting on almost 2,000 cases. But this very similar 1.2% incident of nerve injuries, Domos had a higher rate of nerve injuries, but Gartzman correctly pointed out in his paper that these are going to create inconsistent reporting of complications because, frankly, most of us aren't going to write up our bladder jays with nerve injuries, J.P. Warner accepted. Database studies. So this was surprising to me. I could only find one database study looking at bladder jays in regard to any complications. And this is an area for future research that our institution is actively involved in. The Dagan paper used in the ABOS database comparing early surgeon experience. It's very limited in this database, as you may know, as to what's available. Uh, and it's really short term. Having said that, there was a 20% incidence of complication with American surgeons starting this procedure early in their career. 26% of the complications were nerve injuries. It was the most complication, most common complication reported. Fellowship training did not change anything. And more important, over the period of the study, the complication rate didn't change. So by and large, Americans are not getting better at this over the period of the study. I'm not sure why there aren't more database articles. It's, there is a code for this in the United States, so it's fairly easy to look up. Now, here's an interesting comparison. Hard to compare apples to oranges, admittedly, but the Malachius paper points out a systematic review of iliac crest bone grafting for instability. 261 patients, 19% complication rate, but zero nerve injuries. And this is why some surgeons, including one in our institution, has gone to open bone block rather than ladder jays. So in summary, neurologic injuries are higher in revision cases with ladder jays than uh, primary repairs. It does create a difference in the uh, reporting of nerve injury between American use, where it's used as a revision procedure, and European use, where it's far more commonly used as a primary procedure. Published rates are lower than those obtained from limited database studies. Databases would be good. They reflect typical end users and not experts. Experts, generally speaking, are not going to be duplicated by general users. In expert hands, neurologic injury with arthroscopic letter shades are rare. But again, this may not represent the typical person doing one or two of these a year. And open bone block procedures may decrease the risk of neurologic injury compared to open ladder J. Thank you very much, and we'll move on to the next speaker. This is the open ladder J technique. Look for the bone loss on the glenoid, but look always for some fracture that you can find on the coracoid. The approach is the anterior one, is the deltopectoral approach. This is a right shoulder. You have the deltoid on your left and the pectoralis major on your right. You need to have a good identification on the coracoid and you have to perform on a release on the most lateral part of the coracoid and on the most medial part, like in this case. Identification of the pectoralis minor is important. With a saw of 90 degree, you perform osteotomy and uh, you can finish your osteotomy with an osteotome. At this point, you have the coracoid and the common tendon ready for the graft. Some surgeons are saving the coracoacrone ligament to reinforce the capsule at the end of the surgery. Very important is uh, to make a rotation in the breed of the deepest part of the coracoid to improve the healing process. We use a special device that is a wedge plate that is a wedge on the medial side to improve the compression of the coracoid on the glenoid. We insert a key wire at the inferior tip of the coracoid. 
we use a special device to have two key wires that have the same distance of the two holes of our plate, like you can see in this picture. And along the two key wire, we perform two holes with a drill that is 2.9. So we have two holes on the coracoid, the same distance of the two holes of the plate. You see an inferior and inferior holes on the coracoid ready for the implantation of uh, the screws that stabilize our plate. Very important is the split of the sous cap. Usually is a level of the two thirds superior and one third inferior. This is the right shoulder. We can make a split from uh, lateral to medial. We split the sous cap and the same duration we split the capsula. The vision of the surgical field must be very clean, very clear to have a precise gesture of our surgery. You can see very clearly the humeral head. And this point, we insert a, a humeral head retractor and a retractor on the neck of the scapula, and we make a debris of the glenoid neck. We need a very good view. We insert, as we did on the coracoid, a key wire, usually at five o'clock in the right shoulder. And we use it, and it's the same instrument we use for the coracoid. So we have two key wires that have the same distance of the two holes of the plate, and we drill along the key wire with the 2.9. We have two holes on the glenoid, two holes on the coracoid. We want the best healing of our coracoid. When you have a huge glenoid bone loss, the compression is very easy because the bone loss is large. We have a good fit between the coracoid and the glenoid neck. The problem is when the indication is with no huge glenoid bone loss for some reason, the plate is very important because the wage give a tilt and improve the contact between the coracoid and the glenoid neck, as you can see on the left. On the right shoulder, without using the plate, using only two skew, you can have missing contact between the most medial part of the coracoid and glenoid, and this could lead to osteolysis. This is the final step. We use a, a joystick that helps to give a compression between the plate and the coracoid. Then through the joystick, as you can see, we, compress, we give a compression of the plate on the coracoid. And uh, because it's cannulated, we insert a long key wire through the joystick, through the plate, through the coracoid, and it's going in the back of the coracoid. This point is very easy because we have to look for the inferior hole that uh, is on the glenoid, and we insert a superior key wire the superior part of the coracoid going into the superior hole of the glenoid. And this point is very easy. We have only to insert uh, two screw. The diameter is four, are cannulated, half fitted, and we insert a superior screw. And then along the inferior key wire, after removing the joystick, we insert the inferior one. It's very nice, this view, because with your finger, you can feel exactly if there is a protrusion and you have to be sure of the right placement of the coracoid. Nice view, the good compression because the plate, good media compression because the wage, 
and very good stabilization because we are using two screw. At the end of the surgery, after checking the position of the coracoid, you have only to close the capsula and the subscap from lateral to medial. Thank you very much for your attention. Hello, good evening, everyone. Uh, it's a real pleasure to participate in this uh, webinar on bone defects chaired by Cosmatsoka, Francesco Franceschi, and Giovanni Di Giacomo. And I will start with this interesting topic is why do I prefer uh, lateral defixation, the bone block with the screws instead of, uh, of suture? These are my disclosures. And I have only five minutes, so we'll try to provide five solid arguments to use screws instead of sutures in five minutes. First is that we know that screw fixation is more resistant to compression than sutures. And this is very important because this is the direction of the vector force, that is uh, the direction to which the graft is submitted during the movement of the shoulder. So if the screw fixation is more resistant, we could provide our patients a uh, earlier activity reincorporation after the procedure. It's very important to obtain a more resistant compression. But what about traction uh, forces? We know that bullet strength is a very interesting uh, study uh, published by ProVenture. He found that there were no differences between sutures and, uh, and, and screws when the graft is uh, under tension loads. So no difference in tension loads, more resistance in compression forces. What about position control? Uh, we know that we are very, very used to uh, control the position of bone fragments uh, with, uh, uh, with uh, screws. And if we use suture, you can see there can be some tilting of the graft immediately, uh, losing the desired portion of the graft. This has been proven in a study. This is a, a study of my series that has been submitted. I can obtain a very nice position of the graft in terms of uh, becoming flush with the articular surface if we use screws instead of, uh, instead of sutures. What about clinical studies? This is a very interesting uh, study published by the group of uh, Alexander Hardy who made clear that those patients operated with sutures uh, pose a higher risk of recurrence than those patients operated with screws after an arthroscopic lethargy. So keep in mind that clinical results are also important and the, the risk of recurrence is lower if we use screws instead of sutures. And finally, should we always use the screws? You can see here in this image, a complication that can happen uh, after arthroscopic lethargy that is the breakage of the graft uh, because of the screws. And this can happen in patients with very small and very thin uh, coracoid process. And uh, this means that probably in patients with very thin uh, coracoid process, it should be better to use a, a uh, more thin uh, fixation methods. And this has been indicated uh, in this interesting study by the group of Johannes Barth, who calculated the safety distance from the hole in the coracoid to the uh, edge of the coracoid. And we know that uh, sutures uh, provide a higher security distance between the hole in the middle of the coracoid and the medial and lateral borders of the coracoid. So in patients with very thin coracoids, it's better to use probably screws, uh, sorry, it's better to use sutures than, uh, than screws. So in summary, I think it's better to use uh, screws to fixate, to fix the atroscopy lethargy because they provide more resistant compression, uh, resistance to compression forces. They have similar pull strength than sutures. They can uh, uh, produce a better graft position control. They, we know they have a lower recurrence rate 
but screws are not for every patient. It should be pres uh, reserved not for patients with small coracoids, and in this subset of patients with very thin coracoids, probably sutures could be used. Thank you very much uh, for this uh, kind invitation. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for, for this kind invitation to talk about arthroscopy lethargy with balance fixation. Why I prefer this kind of fixation? This is my disclosure. In the next seven minutes, I will talk about why I perform lethargy procedure in arthroscopic fashion, why I prefer cortical balance, and when I choose one or two double balance. These are the three reasons why I choose arthroscopy lethargy in my practice. Among complications of the open technique, nerve damage is the most dangerous one. All of these four nerves are stimulated during the open procedure. But if you look at the picture, I would say, where is the nerve? Instead, during arthroscopy, it is very easy to visualize axillary and muscle-cutaneous nerves, and no nerve injuries were reported by Pascal Boileau. And if you look at these three publications, it is more possible to place the graft in a brown position with an open lethargy. Arthroscopy gives us the chance to address associated lesions like heel sac lesions with the heel sacs remplissage, like you see in these videos. And now, why I prefer cortical balance instead of screws? As stated by Meraner, the revision rate of arthroscrews is approximately 24%. Because they can be malpositioned, it is possible a pullout caused by osteoporosis or a bending of the screws. A too long screw may damage the suprascapular nerve, crowding in the suprascapular notch. Especially if the angle of approach is of the screw is wider than 10 degrees. This paper shows that the tunnel at the arthral bottom has a narrower angle than the arthral screws. There is the reason because I use the rear guide ideated by Pascal Boileau that guarantees 10 degrees angle from the glenoid plate from the tunnels. Moreover, arthroscue technique provides an higher positioning than the double button fixation. And the too high position on the graph may cause new dislocation and the suprascapular nerve injury. Finally, this paper shows that one button is biomechanically comparable to two screws. Due to the use of the tensional device, that lock up to 100 newtons the fixation. Moreover, this paper shows for button fixation, optimum osteointegration, a low resorption rate. But which is the ideal button? I prefer this kind of nosed button that can protect the tunnel inside the coracoid against the friction of the sutures and has a very smooth surface. Basically, we can perform two kinds of techniques. Using one 
double bottom that is the original one by Pascal Boileau, and another one by an Italian group, which suggests two double bottom fixation. But when to choose one double bottom or two double bottom? I prefer to use one double bottom in patients with an high IC score associated to a small glenoid defect or an on-track heel sucks in order to avoid an over-treatment and to save money. Instead, I prefer two double bottoms when the glenoid defect is equal or greater than 25% or it is associated to an off-track heel sucks lesion. This technique guarantees an increased graft size and a larger contact area that can ease the bone healing. For this technique, I use the modified rear guide with two cannulas. As you can see here with the first and second tunnel. Instead the coracoid, on the coracoid, I use a straight guide always with two cannulas. This is an intraoperative view that shows the two cannula that drive two very small fissure wire through the coracoid. <clears throat> the fissure wires guide the cannulated rear. Then enlarge the hole inside the coracoid. These are the nose buttons going down to the coracoid. First one, and second one. Instead, these are the sutures passed through the coracoid and the glenoid through the subscapularis split before the coracoid osteotomy. These are the sutures connecting coracoid and glenoid. The two strands of sutures allows me to drive better the coracoid through the subscapularis split with a pull and release mechanism and north and south pole of the bone plug. This is the final view with a perfect matching of the coracoid. When it is possible, I use to add a labral repair. Let me finish with this wonderful case with a very good cosmetic result, a very good positioning of the graft and a perfect return to sport. Thank you very much for everybody. Hi, my name is Ivan Wong. I'm from Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. We'll talk about bone block procedures for glenoid bone loss. My disclosures. So we already know Ladder J is the gold standard for shoulder instability with bone loss, but it's non-anatomic. It has a high complication rate. It can progress to glenohumeral osteoarthritis and failure of this surgery makes revision surgery very difficult. We do know that open ladder J is significantly better than an arthroscopic banker repair in long-term studies. 
but Latter-day trades a decrease in recurrence rate for an increase in complication rate and difficulties with future revision surgeries. So why the arthroscopic Latter-day? Well, we've already heard it improves visualization so you can treat other pathologies, theoretically making a better accuracy for the bone graft to decrease future osteoarthritis, but you still have to visualize the nerve because they still have to go through a subscap split, making the risks the same as it would be with open Latter-day reconstruction. So there's been critical flaws preventing an uptake of arthroscopic Latter-day. We think it's a high learning curve, doesn't address the capsule. You're still close to the nerve with the same inherent risk of neurovascular injury. You still have to sub split the subscap muscle and failure still makes revision surgery more difficult. We think the ideal surgical technique is something that's arthroscopic, anatomic, has a low complication rate, preserves the subscap, addresses the bone loss, and allows you to repair the bank card on top. Matt Preventure has already published his uh, outcomes of this in 2009 with three, uh, uh, three patients going through, which shows distal tibial allograft is very successful, even though you have to do it through the same open approach. Most commonly, people ask if you really need the conjoined tendon to prevent recurrent dislocation. And this level one study in 2019 won the NEAR award comparing Latter-day versus iliac crest bone graft transfer for patients with bone loss and found that there's no difference in radiographic or clinical outcome at two-year follow-up. So we do not need a sling if we can recreate the glenoid bone. We've published our technique of how to do this in 2015. Essentially, this is what it looks like. The left, you can see the outside view, right is the inside view. Here's a look down from the anterior superior portal, seeing a hill sacs lesion and significant anterior glenoid bone loss. That's measuring less than 20 millimeters of bone. We start off with the same technique. We just do an anterior inferior release of the glenohumeral ligament to allow for a bank heart repair. But this is where it's different. We add new bones. So to get the Halifax portal, we get the switching stick from posterior portal, parallel to the glenoid, superior to subscap, and lateral to conjoint tendon. Once we get this, this takes about a minute. We push the switching stick from back to front and get our skin incision made so we can insert the graft through the same portal. So this graft is coming through that Halifax portal. You can see how inferior it is. We can actually get to the very bottom of the glenoid this way. And having a switching stick from the posterior portal allows us to get access to the very inferior aspect of the glenoid. We can line this up and you can see the accuracy of how we can see this arthroscopically to make that graft exactly positioned perfectly. And because we didn't damage the subscap, we can reduce this back to the normal spot. And with the capsule label complex still intact, we can now do a regular bank out repair on top of this bone graft and we all know the outcomes of a banker repair with normal bone is excellent. So this is now we've restored the bone. We do a banker repair essentially with somebody who has normal bone loss. And you see the final view, the shoulder stable at time zero. What we found is the learning curve is significantly better than the arthroscopic ladder J. You can see the arthroscopic ladder J on the left. They need 25 cases. They do decrease surgical time, but the complications did not decrease. Whereas the anatomic glenoid reconstruction, because of the Halifax portal, it takes less cases to do, and there's no complications compared to the arthroscopic ladder J. And probably the reason what the difference is, is, you can see the left, the number of portals you need for the arthroscopic ladder J, of which four of them are new portals completely from an outside-in technique, of which takes a lot of time before you get comfortable with it. With the anatomic glenoid, that red dot represents the portal that you need, and that is quite simple. It's an inside-out portal, very simple to do and very quick. You also are able to address the capsule at the end of the procedure. The left is the arthroscopic ladder J. After the bone block, you can see the coracoid in there placed appropriately. But without the capsule, the shoulder still subluxes over the edge of the glenoid so that you're into the muscle belly. So you really need the, subs uh, the conjoint tendon to prevent it from dislocating. Whereas the anatomic glenoid has bone graft, and now we do a bank out repair so the shoulder is stable right at time zero. 
It's also away from the nerve. We've done our cadaveric study showing that when we go through the rotating interval and sublux uh, and, and, and push the subscap down, we're about five centimeters away from the neurovascular junction. So it's a very safe portal. This is what it looks like on a cadaver. We actually dissected out, we have methylene blue in that rotator interval. And you can see with the conjoint tendon, we're well away from the neurovascular bundle. It also doesn't damage the subscap. Here again, the, 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 the Halifax portal, switching sick parallel to glenoids, superior to subscap, lateral to conjoint, and we can insert the graft through this rotator interval by, uh, by pushing the subscap down, not damaging the subscap. We compared our outcomes from the arthroscopic bladder shape to the anatomic glenoid, and we found that the union, healing, size, and resorption are the same between both groups. The step formation is the only thing different, suggesting that anatomic glenoid is actually better than, than the arthroscopic ladder jay because we have that cartilage to help line up those bone block, bone areas. We have our outcomes that we published in 2020, which shows that we have no redislocation rates in our, all our patients with one subluxation by the uh, uh, feeling from the patient, no nerve injuries, but we did have to remove five sets of screws because they're irritating the subscap. We found that the graft unites in all cases. The angles are quite appropriate. The positioning is excellent. There is some resorption uh, as, and remodeling is what we call it because there's healing and remodeling in that bone. But the remodeling actually gets the final A to B dimension of the glenoid with the graft somewhere around 30 millimeters, which is what anatomic is. And so most of this is us putting a graft in that's too big, that's remodeled to something that's uh, normal size. So we find that the arthroscopic anatomic glenoid is a faster learning curve, similar to Bankart, allows you to repair the capsule, is safe away from neurovascular structures, doesn't damage the subscap muscle, and is anatomic, which doesn't make future revision surgeries more difficult. Thank you. Thank you. I'm honored to talk to you about the remplissage. Remplissage, what is it? It is the filling in, is translated in the French. Dr. Connolly, 1972, first described the filling in the Hillsex defect with open transfer of the infraspinatus tendon with a portion of the greater tuberosity into the defect. And Dr. Gene Wolfe, in 2007, first described the arthroscopic procedure of remplissage of filling in the defect with the posterior capsule and infraspinatus tendon via suture anchors. So what does remplissage do? It fills the humeral defect by converting it from an engaging intraarticular defect into an extraarticular lesion. The advantages of remplissage are that it addresses the humeral head bone loss entirely arthroscopically. You can perform concomitant procedures, it's minimally invasive, and there's less risk and morbidity as associated with open bone grafting, such as ladder J. Indications for this are revision surgery or in combined defects of glenoid and humeral head bone loss, or contact athletes with moderate to large heel sacs lesions such as you see here. Remplissage provides a tether so the humeral head does not slide out. Excellent results have been shown. Nice systematic review by Dr. Bill Levine and the group at Columbia and JBGS in six studies had good to excellent outcomes, no significant loss of shoulder motion and a low complication rate. A recent systematic review and meta-analysis in Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery basically showed that remplissage and Lanerge procedures yielded comparable post-operative outcomes. At three years, remplissage had a recurrent instability rate of 9.8% and Lanerge of 7.0%. Another very good systematic review, also published in Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery, looked at the row score, clinical outcomes at three years, and remplissage had a better score of 89.4 than Lanerge at 88.4. There are simple steps for remplissage that we'll go over. 
Position in is key in the lateral decubitus position at 30 degrees tilt. Have to have a setup such as this. You need distraction for the Bankart lesion. Take out of the distraction for the remplissage. Distraction, out of distraction. Now here's a case, a 32-year-old rock climber with dozens of dislocations. So the hill sacs lesion is identified, the Bankart lesion is then prepared, and then the hill sacs lesion is prepared by decortication of the bone. You have a nice area for placement then of the anchors. Now I like to do needle localization through the area in the area that I'm going to place the anchors or retrieve the suture. I put this in the subacromial space and then I like to debride the bursa. And this needle helps localize this to exact spot where I'm going to be. So I have a clear track for any sutures or anything that I am doing in the subacromial space. Now, once that is done and cleaning the bursa is done, then I'll place the cannula. And this cannula can stay in the subacromial space or the cannula can even be placed into the area of the glenohumeral joint. And through this cannula, the anchors can be placed or the anchors can also be placed through the posterior cannula. Now, through the same cannula, I do like to retrieve the sutures. And this is uh, done by uh, placing the sutures on the hill sacs lesion, retrieving the sutures through the tissue, either with a bird beak device or your choice of a device, into the area of the infraspinatus, into the subacromal space, and then out the lateral shoulder. Once these sutures are retrieved, then a second anchor, if you choose, can be placed also in the hill sacs lesion, and then the sutures are also retrieved in a similar fashion. And then once this is done, the Bankart lesion is fixed as you normally would fix it. And then once the Bankart lesion is fixed, the hill sacs lesion is fixed. Now, this is a uh, knotless anchor. Uh, this can be done either by tying sutures or with a knotless anchor such as this. The sutures already have been placed. You have a clear track in the subacromal space and you can see the filling in of the hill sacs lesion. So in summary, think arthroscopic bank art and remplissage in moderate to large hill sacs and glenoid defects less than 25%. Revision cases with unaddressed hill sacs, maybe contact or athletes or athletes at risk with moderate to large hill sacs and minimal bone, glenoid bone loss. And remember the simple steps to glenoid success to replicage success. Thank you. Appreciate your attention. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for the invitation. Huge bipolar defects. But why did it happen again? In our first study with 200 atoscopic repairs, we have only a 9% recurrence rate, but we had seen in this group that the biggest risk factors are bone loss. It's not age, not gender, not activity level. And in the revision cases, when you looked closer to this bone defect, we could improve the results. 80% return to sports after mean of nine months, 76% return to previous level without any limitation. So the effect of bipolar bone loss is a double. On the glenoid side, on the humeral side, it's a double trouble. And it's a known fact because this combination have a negative effect on the glenohumeral stability. Bipolar lesions are not uncommon. 
number of bipolar defects increases with recurrence up to 8%. What image do I use? X-rays, MRIs, especially to detect additional pathologies, but also a CT scan, 3D reconstruction if possible to evaluate the bone loss, the dysplasia, the canoidal traversion. So the gold standard is a 3D CT scan with thermal subtraction. Most important is a correct en face view of the glenoid. MRI is more observer dependent and usually it's not possible to adjust an en face view. What do I measure? I measure on the glenoid side, I measure on the hill side, on the humeral side, and together the track. Why should we all measure the history? is important. Pioneering work was done by Steve Burkett and Joe Devere in 2000. They noted a high risk of dislocation with anti-glenoid bone loss, 60% failure. E.g. Itoi could biomechanically show us that 21% is a problem with a bunker repair. Sugaya checked 100 CT scans and have seen a lot of bone loss, 50% of these cases. The easiest way is just to measure the diameter and the defect, and then you get the size of the defect. But not everything fits perfect into a box. If you do this, you will often overestimate the defect about 5%. So that's not a good idea. The glenoid bone loss is really critical. If you have a glenoid bone loss of more than 15%, the bunker repair cannot restore the glenohumal translation. And with strict range of motion. Why we care about the glenoid? Because of the contact area. The contact area decreased a mean of 40% and the pressure increased nearly 100%. Again, the critical bone loss is said to be around 15%. And the new philosophy by Giovanni Di Giacomo about the track on and off track concept you can understand if we lose some on the glenoid side, the track is much smaller than the intact glenoid. But also on the hills X side, on the humeral side, you will see more hills X lesions in the recurrent dislocator, about 90%, but still not clear evidence for critical size. This around 12% of the humeral head may increase instability. So we measure now that this glenoid track concept quite easy, it's an easier way now, you measure the distance on the glenoid and you measure the distance from the rotator cuff to the anterior part of the hill sacs. And if A is more than B, you have to fix it. So it's an easier practical way for every day. And in our own series with 100 patients, 88 were on track. 30% of these patients with off-track lesion had to be revised. So it's a clear sign. We have to look closer to the bipolar lesion. We have options on the glenoid side or the humeral side, atoscopic open bankart repair, latage, J-span, allograft, on the humeral side, remplissage, posterior capsule placation, iliac crest, oats, or prothesis. First case now, atoscopic stabilization four years ago, a traumatic redislocation. We fixed it now with a latage because the biggest problem was on the glenoid side. But in most cases, we address both iliac crest graft on the humor side and on the glenoid side. Sometimes you get away just with one shot. But if it's still engaging, like in this case, you have to think about an additional procedure. It's needed to get him on track. 
Rabelisage techniques, if we have two knots or two anchors, you cover the area about 13%. If you use a double poly system, you get about 16%. If we use now tape, a tape bridge, we can cover about 30%. This study was done in the lab. An alternative now is a postomedial capsule blockation with the new all suture anchors. This reduces the anterior shoulder stability. Similar to implantisage without restricting motion in the setting of an engaged Hilsachs defect. My preferred technique to address Hilsachs lesions, if it's lateral implantisage, it's more medial, also Hilsachs or iliac crest. And if, it's a, if we have an epileptic history, we use a metal implant, hemicap prosthesis. This is just my worst case. Um, you see the dislocation in the pneumal joint. You see the defect on the MRI, and you see the bone loss defect on the glenoid about 20%, and the huge off-track hill lesion. Um, again, CT scan now, we see a huge defect now. What are our options? That's what, how we treat it. We use the inner crest bone block on the humeral side and on the glenoid side, revised it and fixed it. And this is the CT scan after the surgery, filling both defects and enlarge the glenoid. So what we have learned, a preoperative evaluation of bipolar lesions, get proper images, measure carefully, address the pathologies properly and entirely, pick the right procedure combination individually. Thank you very much for your attention. Dear friends, thank you for giving me the opportunity to show you why the French approach to anterior instability is almost basically latarge for everyone. You know, the, we were, most of us were trained by Gilles Valch and he show us how to perform this surgery, but also we, we know the excellent uh, result we can expect with this surgery with a low recurrence rate of 1%, whatever the preoperative lesion are. And this is probably why we have this French exception. Uh, and this is uh, in a, a survey that was published uh, by Hervé Tomazo and Olivier Courage in 2010. You can see that uh, open latarge is preferred by a French surgeon in 72% of the case, whereas the rest of the world would embrace the arthroscopic bank heart in 90% of the cases. If we look uh, the tendency 10 years after, you can see that it is even worse. 80% of the French surgeon would prefer to stabilize the shoulder with the open latarge, whereas only 10% would choose an arthroscopic bank heart. So why are we resisting so hard? We are resisting like Asterix and Obelix against the rest of the world. And you know, we have probably some reserve that we analyze a little bit different, especially in an arthroscopic bank art. You know, the predictive factors and the easy score uh, presented by Pascal Boileau according to uh, sports such as overhead athletes or contact athletes who had bad reserve, but also competition athletes. Also the preoperative uh, bone defect on the humeral or on the glenoid side, but also signs of hyperlaxity. And he presented this score 
And you have a number of points. And he said that if the easy score is less or equal to four points, it is okay to do an arthroscopic bank card alone. But after this, it is not recommended. We challenge his score with a prospective study with the Francophone Society of Arthroscopy more than 10 years ago. And we have almost 10 years of follow-up. Uh, we had 125 cases, and uh, the study was uh, conducted under Olivier Courage and Hervé Tomezzo. And you see that at 10 years follow-up for isolated arthroscopic bank art, even in this selected population with an easy score less or equal to four points, as recommended by Pascal Boileau, the rate of uh, recurrence is quite high, 23%. If we look at the survivor curve, you can see there are two lines. The first line is the easy score, less or inferior to two points. So it has to say one or two. You can see that the recurrence rate is completely acceptable, 10% at 10 years, which is okay. And after four years, there is no more recurrence. But if you look at the second line, you see if the easy score is three or four, the recurrence rate is unacceptable at nine years, 36%, with even after seven years, a second dropout. And if you look at the literature review, mainly uh, constituted with retrospective study, they find the same result, a very high recurrence rate uh, if you do an isolated bank card. However, with the Latarche, whatever the preoperative lesion are, you have always some predictable result, even in young and competition athletes, as we published in the AGSM recently. You, we compared uh, competition athlete and recreation athlete, and we showed that the re recurrence rate was exactly the same, under 5%, with excellent outcome, even better in a competition athlete. And again, you remember that the Latarget with the Latarget, you can uh, go back to daily activity at two weeks and you can return to play whatever sports after three months. However, the recent literature, mainly coming from North America, has uh, reported the severe complication with this technique. So at least what we can uh, admit is that technique is very difficult to perform and that needs to be uh, appropriate uh, to be trained with an appropriate uh, mentor to know how to do it. But you can also uh, be better with uh, uh, some specific guides. However, La Target is not a miraculous treatment. You cannot treat hyperlaxity with La Target. You have to be very uh, cautious with osteoporotic bone for patients over uh, 50 years of age. So in this case, prefer an arthroscopic tria, which is an osteoclasia of the uh, coracoid, uh, not a free graft. And in case of epilepsy, be careful to stabilize neurologic problem before uh, doing this technique. Thank you very much. And I hope to see you uh, physically in Geneva in uh, 2021 uh, in, uh, in December. Thank you very much for your attention. Well, that was a tremendous first session. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Barth. Uh, now we're gonna have a mini debate uh, with uh, Professor Norsa and Calvo debating uh, the arthroscopic ladder J, why I stopped and why I continue. And then we'll have our final discussion. 
So about 30 minutes late left. Uh, if you have any questions in the audience, please use the Q&A to contact us and we'd be happy to discuss. Thank you. Dear colleague, dear moderator, it's a great pleasure for me to have the opportunity to speak about uh, this very hot topic. Why did I stop arthroscopic latarge? As you know, the latarge procedure is the best surgery to treat recurrent anterior shoulder dislocation. We have now, due to the European work, more than 30 years follow-up for this procedure. You have a very low recurrence rate. You have a very low long-term complication. And we now know that uh, OA is a complication of instability and not of a well-performed procedure. You can treat every kind of anterior instability with latarge. I have to confess that I had the chance in 2012 to be involved in a wonderful experience with two uh, wonderful uh, surgeons, Laurent Lapos and Gilles Valch, and we conduced for the French Arthroscopic Society a prospective study about arthroscopic versus open latarge. We wanted to answer several questions. The first one was to know if arthroscopic latarge give the same result than open latarge, and we compare our result to the one of uh, Gilles Valch. We wanted to know what are the complications specific to the arthroscopic latarge, and we also wanted to know if there is an alternative technique. That's why we involved the patient of Pascal Boileau with the handle bouton. And of course, we wanted to know if there is any future to this procedure. We conduct several studies, and the first one was a prospective multicentric study involving 390 cases. We want to collect all the complications postoperatively. And you see that uh, regarding the recurrency, we have cases in both groups. Regarding the complication of neurological disorder, we have much more complications in arthroscopic latarge with temporal nerve palsy. And we have more infection uh, in the open than uh, in the arthroscopic when you see the number of patients. For the same theory, we check uh, the follow-up on the clinical result. And regarding the Valch and Duplay score, regarding the modified row score, we see that at one year, and we publish those data, the result, whatever is the technique, are exactly the same. We wanted to know if there's a difference regarding the positioning of the bone block. We study the position in the transversal plane and we see a very slight difference. We study the mean value in the sagittal plane and we see that the arthroscopic latarge have higher screws. We see that in 71% of open, you have a lower bone block. And with the other button, you have a very low position, but it's a vertical bone block. Regarding the angulation of the glenoid tunnel, of course, with the other button, you have very repetitive and reproducible technique due to the device to put it always in the same position. It's quite different when you do it open or under arthroscopic latarge. But what is different and what is important and we published in 2018 is this slide. You see that when you do an arthroscopic latarge, the mean value is the same, but you have a high discrepancy in the position. So you are less reproducible. You do not increase the good positioning. If the global position is, born, is good, you see that you have change between each patient. 
We wanted to know if the global function is good, if the patients are satisfied. And we do another series of 184 patients we follow for one year prospectively. If you have less pain during the two days following the surgery, when you see the follow-up, you see that during the year following the surgery, whatever you do, arthroscopic or open, the results are basically the same. The people will improve for three to six months and will be affected at 12 months. There is no difference if you do it open or under arthroscopy. So the chairman said, okay, we have to see if we have complication because it said that it is very difficult to do it. And we collect all our data that we have operated under arthroscopy. I did since 2010, 200 cases. And all the surgeons did basically 200 cases, except Laurent that bring us 500 cases. And you see that over 1,500 cases, we have low complication rate, which is comparable to the literature. So the conclusion of the symposium was simple. We get an arthroscopic latarge. You see that it's effective, it's reproducible, and the complication rate is low. So what happens is in symposium, of course, we publish all the data. And if you go in the literature, you see that you have six prospective comparative studies who say the same thing. There is no difference. On my point of view, no difference means no benefit. You can go to the meta-analysis. Four papers were published analyzing all that, and they say the same thing. There's no difference. And they say also need to be a high volume center, an experience arthroscopy guy, but I don't know what it is. Does it mean that you need to have some skill, which means that it's not possible to do it easily? My point of view is that uh, you have to think about the fact that innovation must not be a goal, but a way to improve your result. Today, arthroscopic latage do not improve the result. There's no clinical, non-functional, or no radiological benefit to do it under arthroscopy. It's much more expensive and much more difficult to do and to teach. So today, my point of view, there's no reason to use current available technique to do arthroscopic latarge. Thank you so much. So in this topic, I should uh, support why do I continue doing arthroscopic latarge? So uh, this is my disclosures, but furthermore, I am one of the first users of arthroscopic latarge and I'm a clear contributor to the kit Alatarje experience as manufactured by DPU Mitech today. So I'm really involved from the beginning in the technique of arthroscopic Alatarje. Uh, but if we want to analyze what is, is it better to do it arthroscopically, we should uh, keep, in a, keep an eye of the, on the four players who are uh, playing in this, in this game. First, the surgeon, second, the uh, healthcare provider, Third, the medical device manufacturer, and above all of them, the patient who is the most important player in this game. What about the patient? We know that uh, laparoscopic latarge provides superior cosmesis. We know that concomitant abnormalities can be treated arthroscopically at the same time and, and are more easy to identify. identified. It, it, it is associated with a less post-operative pain, and it, it obtains superior boosted scores according to several studies. But there are some concerns on internal rotation, as we reported uh, last year. We know that the uh, probability to achieve a parallel angle of the screws with the surface is lower, and it requires longer surgical time when compared to uh, uh, to uh, open surgery. What about what about the surgeon? We know that the uh, learning curve lateral is, is steep and it's difficult, but the learning curve is similar to other procedures, and it has been made clear by by us that in 20 to 30 cases 
with a kind of technique, certain, a quite uh, a standard surgical time, which is not uh, superior to two hours. What about the healthcare provider? We know that the cost, the cost of arthroscopic latarge is superior over open latarge, as uh, in other arthroscopic procedures like ACL reconstruction or other arthroscopic procedures. And what about the device manufacturers? We know that we have now a new kit on the block, which is the kits that are being designed for arthroscopic latarge. But the, this is a good uh, uh, venture between surgeons and industry to uh, support innovation and to provide better healthcare for our patients. So the reasons why I continue doing arthroscopic latarge is because I believe there are indications for the latarge procedure. Uh, because my surgical time, once I learn, is similar or shorter than the open technique, because my clinical results are very good, are satisfactory, and because innovation should be part of our surgical activity every day. Thank you very much. Okay. We'll take uh, uh, Giovanni, Francesco, Joffrey, and Emilio uh, to spend a few minutes uh, in their debate. <clears throat> One of the questions uh, that was asked, and I'll ask that of both Emilio and uh, Joffrey, is um, do you use the latter J in the first time dislocator? Wow. Thank you. Thank you, Gus, for, for the question. For, thank you for inviting me to this interesting webinar. That's a very good question. Should we use Latarje for a first-time shoulder dislocator? Uh, I think if there's indication for Latarje, we should use it. Probably there's a case with a, a very important bony uh, defect or a off-track heel sac lesions. These are two indications for arthroscopic Latarje in the first uh, shoulder dislocator. They're not very common, but they are indications. Yes, thank you for your question. I answer exactly the same thing. For me, the indication of the latarge is not a question of timing. It depends of the age of the patient, of uh, its kind of sport, and of course, of the bony defect. So if you have a bony defect, if it's a very uh, active and sportive guy, and very young, because we know that very young people will have recurrency, uh, I will do a latarge as a first time procedure. Absolutely, yes. Francesco? Be the same. Uh, if, uh, if the patient is young, is sports active, above all, uh, above all um, uh, sport, contact sport, I prefer to perform uh, lethargy at the first episode. Really? Interesting. Giovanni? Yeah, I agree 100%, 100%. especially in uh, traumatic collision sport. Uh, uh, for me, it's not unusual to perform uh, latarge as a first kind of surgery. For uh, the idea of the open versus the arthroscopic, um, we heard two great uh, presentations. Do you think that um, it's worth going through the idea or the difficulty. And the question also is, when you do the arthroscopic or you do the open, do you repair the capsule back, yes or no? Okay, if you want, I can answer this in open lethargy because we perform a capsulotomy that is not vertical, but is horizontal. 
there is no problem to fix the capsula. But uh, if you perform a vertical capsulotomy and you fix the capsula to the bone loss besides the latage, probably you can have a no good wasi because you lose external rotation. So if you perform a horizontal capsulotomy, feel comfortable to fix the capsula. On my point of view, I want to say that uh, when I was doing uh, arthroscopic latange, I was doing the, the way with the two screws. And in this case, you do not fix back uh, uh, the capsule because you remove it. Then I moved to the Pascal Boileau technique and I used the other button to try to fix back the capsule. And you can do it with, if you do the other button. Uh, but when you do it open, of course, you can fix it. It's not very difficult. Even if you open it uh, horizontally, me, I make a T-shape to see perfectly uh, the, the glenoid, and you can fix it back. So I think that's a, it's just a question of, uh, of technique and time. You can do whatever you want under arthroscopy. You can put probably two screws, repair the capsule, fix the cuff, whatever you want. Uh, it's just a question of time. But you can do everything you do uh, open under arthroscopy, for sure. Uh, in my case, uh, I learned the arthroscopy lateral technique from uh, Laurent Lafosse. And as Gafois said, um, I learned it just removing the capsule. But then I started preserving the capsule. I tried to dissect the capsule and peel off the, uh, the posterior aspect of the subscapularis, uh, retract it back to the axillary fold. And once the arthroscopy lateral day is completed, the bone block is fixed. I bring back the capsule into the joint and reconstruct both the bone defect with the bone block and the capsule back. So I'm, I'm trying to preserve the capsule. Uh, with regard to the, if it was to, to run the learning curve, I think it's not mandatory to do arthroscopy latergy. I think it's very important to do latergy because, because there are indications for it, but you must not do it always open arthroscopically. The, the three conditions to be met to do arthroscopy is, is that you have to be to feel that there are indications for the technique. Second, you need to be highly experienced in arthroscopic technique. On third, you need to uh, you need to have many patients. That means high uh, cases, high volume centers. Otherwise, it's better to do it open. Yes, because you know, if you do a lot of arthroscopic latage, it's okay. But as soon as you stop to do some cases, and if you, it's something that you forget uh, very quickly to do. In my experience, that's what I stopped. I have done a lot, but for any reason, for two months, I stopped and then I came back, it was very difficult because it's different from a cuff. It's not always the same thing. There's always bad events that can happen. You know, it's very difficult and uh, you have to be always under alert. It's very stressful surgery. Even if like you, Emilio, you know, it took me 45 minutes to do it at the end because you know how to do it, but just, always can be some bad surprise when you do it under arthroscopy, which is absolutely not the case when you do it open. I just want to go back about the capsule because uh, I have uh, both experience because at the beginning, when I started with the Pascal Boileau technique uh, with only one button, I started to fix the capsule back to the glenoid and repair the labrum. After that, I started with the second technique with two tunnels and two double buttons. And at the beginning, I didn't, uh, I, I didn't use to fix back the capsule to the glenoid. Now I'm trying to fix every time the, the labrum again. 
above all because I think that if you perform an atroscopic uh, per procedure, you have to restore the anatomy of the of the capsule in every kind in every way you can. One question uh, before we enter, uh, and this is um, for the arthroscopic ladder J, how many concomitant injuries and what did you treat when you, when you also did that? Okay, I can answer. Concomitant injuries. Uh... Yes, Emilio, please. No, no, you, you, you have to, I think you're going to show the data of the SFA study, am I right? No, I, I, I can tell you, regarding the associate studies, I, I think that uh, in my experience, I did one time a tenodesis for a guy who was a slap, a very young guy who was a golf player, but uh, I never did any other treatment when I do an arthroscopic latarge. I think that if you think that sometimes it's useful to make a ILSAX remplissage plus a latarge, you have to do your latarge under arthroscopy because it's too difficult to do both uh, in the same time or to do two surgery. Me, I don't believe that uh, there's any indication for remplissage when you do uh, arthroscopic latarge. I prefer to do open surgery with graft of the humeral head open. But if you think that there's an indication for latarge plus remplissage, then I think it's useful to do it under arthroscopy. That's my only indication where I justify arthroscopy. Yeah, that, that's a good point, and I, I totally agree. Uh, recently, I have um, I have a, a paper accepted on the American Journal of Sports Medicine on the ability of latarge to restore organic tract, and there is this very small subpopulation of patients in whom, because they have a really large hill sacs, latarge cannot restore organic tract, and this would be a good indication to combine both latarge plus remplissage. It's a very few subset of patients, but you it, it, it does exist. And to me, it's a good indication to do both. So what we are doing now, we are measuring the size of the, of the coracoid before uh, going to, for a latarge, just in case the patient has a very large heel sacs and needs, in addition, a remplissage. Great job. Um, I want to have you guys stay on, but then invite our, also our panel, uh, Guillermo Arce, Knut Beitzel, Michael Freehill, Denny Lee, Andreas Voss to join us now for more discussion and questions. And to get us going, we can go down the panel. And I would say um, one of the questions here is some recommendations for patients uh, that have post-traumatic instability, but also possess hyperlaxity. Giovanni, you can start. Yeah, of course. In this kind of patient, it uh, depends if uh, we are going to perform a latarge. For us, it's not unusual to make a shift, to shift the capsula from inferior to superior uh, using two anchors. So in this case, we can perform a latarge, flaps uh, repair the capsula with the shift. How about if no bone loss? Hey guys, uh, Dana here. I think that question came from Mikael. Um, yeah, we see quite a few patients with hyperlaxity. I tend to do anterior and posterior capsular shift, sort of like a hammock hitch. Uh, and that seems to help 
with the hyperlexity, notwithstanding the trauma. Denny, do you do that arthroscopic or? I do uh, arthroscopic. So we kind of um, tighten the interior and then the posterior after which the view really gets clouded up because the entire joint gets closed in. And that really is the way in, in this patients with background capsular hyperlexia. And those are in patients with no labral tear, correct? So do you use anchors or do you use the labrum? We use the labrum. Um, I, we do put in the anchors and this is without large glenoid loss, without large bone loss. Yeah. Right. So you use anchors both posteriorly and anteriorly and that's how you shift. Yeah. Anyone else on the panel want to weigh in on that? Uh, Gus? Yeah. Uh, I, I would like to address the point of uh, the healing of the labrum there because many many of the recurrences are, are traumatic and uh, do yourself, Gus, or anybody in the panel have uh, experienced a biopsy of the labrum repair? And uh, do any anyone think that the success of the lethargy uh, over the bunker repair is a thing of uh, uh, trying to heal soft tissue to bone or to cartilage, and the other one is to healing bone to bone with a, a screw or a button. Uh, any experience in the panel about the, the healing of the labrum uh, to the cartilage or the bone? It's more a question than a, than a, a statement. <laughs> I think that uh, we have to keep in mind that in most of cases, when you do Lafarge, is because you think that the labrum on the capsule is no more efficient. So we just discussed before about do we have to fix it back or not. Uh, the description of the Lafarge at the beginning was just the bone block on the conjoint tendon. We do not have to fix back necessarily the capsule. Okay, So uh, there's not necessarily a point to fix it back. In France, in most of the cases, we do not fix back the capsule. We sometimes fix it to the conjoint, to the coraco, to the coraco uh, acromial tend, uh, ligament, but not. There's only one paper published by Luc Favard, who is repairing the capsule just at the junction of uh, the cartilage. And he said that probably he has less osteoarthritis because it prevents any contact between the humeral head on the bone block. So that's the only probably good indication to fix back the capsule to prevent this contact, but not to restore the capsule. We think that the capsule is weak. That's why we move to something which is extra anatomical. Guillermo, it's interesting that in the literature, there are more information about the healing process bone to bone in Latarget because it's easy to study. And it's very clear that the bone-to-bone -bone healing is very good. And uh, you have to keep in mind the wall flow. The more bone loss you have, because the wall flow, the best healing process, bone-to-bone -bone you have. So the literature now is very rich of paper regarding this bone-to-bone -bone healing process. Hey, Gus, I think that going back to that question about labral healing, I think that when we look at like Andreas's results looking long-term at soft tissue repairs, it's gonna be interesting 10 years from now to look at what's gone on since I think a lot of modifications have occurred with arthroscopic techniques. For instance, the six o'clock portal. I think for a long time, we were just going down, fixing the bank heart and not truly getting down to the axillary pouch and, and creating a capsular 
uh, decrease in the volume. And I think the techniques are getting better now. So I think it'll be interesting because I, I do think the soft tissue technique is very important. It's not just getting the labrum back to the glenoid. I think that the question would be the same about uh, single row, double row for calf repair. And if you remember some years ago, uh, Laurent Lafosse presented uh, his technique uh, before the arthroscopic Ladarge, the Cassiopeia. And uh, he tried to fix uh, the capsule and the label to the medial glenoid leg with a, a almost similar double row technique. Maybe it would be, would be the future or, or the past, but would be the solution. Even because we fix, when we fix the labrum or the capsule to the glenoid, we used to make a linear fixation, not a wide fixation, like a rectangular fixation. So the chance to heal is, uh, is less, of course. Wonderful. And with the last few minutes, I'd like to involve the whole uh, panel uh, and just give us and all of the participants on the call right now kind of your top, um, top idea or top thought process in the realm of shoulder instability. And I'll just call out uh, the people that have their uh, video on and you can give your top. So uh, Francesco, you're right on my screen right now. So you go first. What's your top uh, thing to present to people uh, about shoulder instability, either from today's webinar or what you've learned through all your years? In uh, all my years of practice, I learned about all to evaluate before uh, starting to operate any patient, uh, the ball loss and the, ki and the, the kind of lesion that I have to, to deal with the, with the patient. Because if you are wrong with the indication, you won't have any success at the beginning. Joffrey. Uh, if I have one message, uh, I would say, okay, do your surgery, you know, to do, okay? Try to make something that's efficient for a long term and uh, learn your technique to do it correctly. Giovanni. I have two words. First one, you have to study to improve the patient selection. The second rule is uh, the more you do, the better you do. It doesn't matter if you perform open arthroscopic lethargy. You need to perform the technique in the right fashion. Guillermo. My view is like that the, the open lethargy is a great technique. When you know the tips, uh, uh, you get a, a great results with uh, full range of motion. We close the capsule uh, uh, anatomically without any capsular shift. We shift the capsule only when there is an inferior pouch. And I, I think that the open lethargy is a technique to stay. Michael. I guess my message would be to just make sure you get a thorough history. Just because someone hasn't had uh, surgery before, if they've had 
years of events and a number of times you might need to go to something more such as a Latterjay or at least a remplissage and not just a straight bank heart repair on their index procedure. Emilio. Thank you, Carlos. I think it's very important what Giovanni said. Is very We need to, to uh, learn more about how to properly uh, select our patients. There are patients that can be managed only with soft tissue procedures, but there's an important number of patients with off-track heel sacs lesions, with bony lesions that should be addressed with bony procedures, no matter if open or arthroscopic. Danny. Thanks, Gus. Um, from, from my years of doing instability, pay attention to the soft tissue. It does not matter the type of suturing, number of anchors, but how you manipulate the soft tissue to bring about better healing for our patients. Thank you. Canute. Besides all the great things about techniques we've heard, like Asiero said, do it right in the first place. But we've talked now one and a half hours technique open or arthroscopic latage don't forget the rehabilitation we know that they have functional problems afterwards and there is a lot of potential in the muscle function and we don't giuseppe Uh, yes, as I said in one of my last slides, uh, anatomy is the key for me. Uh, what is important is to restore the anatomy at any cost. Lazarge um, procedure is a, is a good way to avoid thinking about the cause of instability. So uh, soft tissues uh, instead of bone defects should be addressed to restore normal anatomy. Andreas Voss. I guess my um, point would be, be like a pilot. So you need a checklist including examination, radiological examination, patient selection. So once before you start surgery, you should, be, you should know what to do and not be surprised by any uh, during surgery. Eric McCarty. Yeah, you have to keep learning. This is why I love this. I'm learning from each and every one of the panel. So you have to keep learning, keep things in the toolbox, be open to, to everything, have a lot of techniques available, understand the arthroscopic, understand the open, know your anatomy, practice. And then it's very important to, uh, as I've found out that uh, keep in mind the inferior, the posterior inferior aspect of fixing the arthroscopic banker to help placate the tissue. And then Canute, I agree, rehab. Gotta have great rehab. Thank you, Gus. Andreas. Yeah, patient is number one. What is his activity? What is his compliance? And then give him the best choice to choose. So restore the anatomy, do what you can to restore him and to give him back his ability to do something overhead. It's soft tissue, it's bone, depending on, on the anatomy. Um, so anatomy is number one. Johannes. Thank you, Gus. So as we see in this webinar, we see that the, the, the surgeon is the method because for each surgeon, there is a, an indication. 
And this is what I, I, I saw. And with my education, my personal education, I was uh, raised with open latage. That was a dogma for, for me uh, as a young surgeon. And then I wanted to challenge this. And I, I tried to, to, to learn how to do an arthroscopic bankard in the US. And then I did uh, try to learn how to do a good arthroscopic latage with screw with uh, uh, under button. And finally, I am back to open latage because you know, at the end of the day, the patient, what does the, the patient want? He wants to have a fast recovery and a safe result. He doesn't care about his lesion. He has a problem and his problem is recurrent instability. And for me, in my hands to treat better, uh, the best way to treat uh, recurrent instability is open latage two weeks back to daily activity, three, three months after he's back to the field with a very low recurrence rate, so definitely open latage. Thank you, Gus. Thank you. Ivan. Yeah, I, I think uh, everyone said the same thing. Uh, I really do think anatomy is key. I think you can always take it one step further, try to look at anatomy. We try to do this all the time with 3D models, and I'll tell you, uh, the approach arthroscopically really changes. You can look at portals where you start. You can start figuring out where you are going, how you analyze the bone, where it fits. And you can't even get the same with the, with a computer generated one. I really do think having it in your hands as a surgeon, it really helps you a lot. So use everything to your advantage. Wonderful. Uh, I think uh, now we're at uh, 100 minutes. Uh, and let me just check if we've uh, got any other questions from anybody. I think we're very good here. I want to thank, first of all, uh, the ISACOS uh, for uh, allowing us and the shoulder committee to present to everybody. I want to thank uh, Giovanni and Francesco for organizing this wonderful webinar. I want to thank our tremendous faculty for hanging in there the whole time. And uh, uh, just everybody did a tremendous job. So thank you uh, and either have a good day, have a good evening, uh, or have a good morning, wherever you are. Bye. Thank you, Gus. Thank you, Isakos. Thank you very Bye. much. Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. 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 B